0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and I'm Richard Grijalva, a postdoctoral fellow in Mexican-American studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Daniele Lorenzini about his new book, The Force of Truth, Critique, Genealogy, and Truth-Telling in Michel Foucault, published in September of this year by the University of Chicago Press. Dr. Lorenzini is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania, educated in Italy at the Scuola Normale Superiore, the University of Pisa, as well as the University of Paris 12 and the University of Rome, from which he jointly earned his doctorate. Before joining the University of Pennsylvania in 2022, he was Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Warwick in the UK and co-director of the Center for Research in post kantian European Philosophy. At present, he is at the Freie Universität in in Berlin on a Humboldt Research Fellowship. He is the author of La France du Vrai de Foucault à Austin, as well as Ethics and Politics of the Self, Foucault, Hadot, Cavell, and Jacques Maritain and Human Rights. The later two of these books are currently under preparation uh, for English translation and publication. Besides authoring dozens of articles and book chapters, he has edited or co-edited 13 collected volumes. He is part of the editorial team at the journal Foucault Studies and is a co-editor of two series, the Chicago Foucault Project with the University of Chicago uh, Press and Philosophie du Présent with Fren in in France. Uh, Dr. Lorenzini, welcome to the show. It is a privilege to have you on. Hi, Richard. Thanks so much for having me. So I I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, your work, and how you ultimately came to this text, The Force of Truth. Yeah, of course. Um, So I
1: guess that my encounter with with Foucault dates back to to my undergraduate years in Pisa, uh, and Arnold Davidson came to Pisa at the time he was also professor at the University of Chicago. And uh, he gave this course on Foucault and the history of sexuality. Uh, and I took the course and I kind of, um, it was the moment for me in which I realized that I was really interested in, in Foucault and in knowing a bit more and reading a bit more um, about him. And then, uh, of course, you know, uh, stuff happened. I I wrote my uh, Ph.D. that then become uh, the book Ethics and Politics of the Self that you mentioned uh, before, but I was always uh, kind of fascinated by this question, I should say, by the importance that uh, Foucault gives to the question of truth and of truth telling. And there's a an interview in 1984 where Foucault says so the interviews is, is called um the care for the truth, les soucis de la verité. And Foucault says there, you know, like I've I've always cared about the truth. I always think that, you know, like part of my my job, part of the work that I was doing was uh you know, like to um to be respectful of uh the truth. And of course, this was very uh in a sense very weird. Because so many people take Foucault to be uh, this kind of champion of postmodernism and postmodernism to be this position of, you know, relativism about truth, reductionism. They take Foucault to be claiming that everything is power, that truth is just an effect of power, uh, that it has no autonomy or no importance uh, for itself. Um, and so it was like this disconnect between my own reading of Foucault and the discourses on Foucault that I kept hearing, that I think pushed me towards this question of what what does Foucault do with the truth, uh, and how do we describe this project of a history of truth that uh, I think does characterize. Uh, most of his work in the 70s and the 80s, but that for some reason has never received sustained attention in the literature because people tend to focus on, uh, you know, uh, his work on the prisons and disciplinary power or biopolitics or the history of sexuality. But I think that all of these projects are in a certain sense um, traversed by this more... Uh, uh more general project of writing a history of truth and a genealogy of truth telling
0: that that's a wonderful response because uh you you actually picked up on uh, on what the next question was was going to be um and i i guess since you were since you situated the 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 problem in that particular way um Besides specialists working in Foucault studies, or in sort of this relationship between you know continental and analytic philosophy, so-called, um, did, who did you anticipate would benefit from reading a, uh, this book? Well, it's a good question because it's always
1: well, it's a question that your publisher always asks you, right, <laughs> at at the very start. Um, and I guess that my answer here is that I think. Since Foucault is so um, constantly mentioned when it comes to discussing uh, our post-truth era, for instance, or uh, the problem of alternative facts, uh, or the problem of fact-checking, etc., I I I think that there's a that there are certain lessons that we can still draw from Foucault, and instead of Putting Foucault in the camp of, you know, uh, one of the reasons why we are now in a post-truth era, one of the reasons why uh, now people can talk about alternative facts or can say that facts don't matter, et cetera. I I think that there's a lesson that we can learn from Foucault. Um, And, well, one aspect, at least, of this lesson is, to me, that... um, Facts by themselves or truths by themselves do not possess critical force. Critical force or critique is an activity that is more complex and that is based or draws from facts and truth, but in a in a in a way that uh, that is complex and it and that is sometimes lost in some of the current debates on fact checking, for instance, where it seems like getting the facts right is enough to convince people of, like, to do the right thing. And it's just not true. We know that getting the facts right is not enough. We know that facts by by themselves are not enough, are not critical forces. And the idea of calling this book the force of truth derives precisely from this, from the idea that um, the truth does not possess a force in itself and for itself. Uh, the force of truth is a force that we attribute to it. And I think that Foucault's project, of a History of Truth is a project that uh, can help us uh, question and explore the ways in which we attribute a certain force to certain truth claims instead of others.
0: That's that's fabulous. Um, it's it's a very ambitious project, uh, and and, uh, and it comes in at one hundred twenty four pages. Uh, it's a very compact book, but there's so much going on in it. Um, it is one of the first systematic treatments of Foucault's research into truth, especially the analysis of Parisia, that he uh, Parisia that he undertakes in various forms especially in the extensive corpus of lectures, uh, namely the ones at the Collège de France, but also others, uh, and and you mobilize these uh, very extensively. Um, It also is a book that seeks to account for several of the implications of Foucault's work on uh, truth, especially as you were saying, uh, with respect to the labors of genealogy uh, and its relationship to critique and the way that genealogy might um, help us rethink our, our received conceptions of, of critique, as well as of truth-telling in the present. The book is divided into five chapters, and it begins with an introductory note on the, that, that is about writing the history of truth and truth-telling. And in chapter one, you discuss the idea of truth as an event, uh, or that you find in Foucault, uh, his understanding of truth as event. In chapter two, you discuss a central concept in Foucault's thought, that of regimes of truth, and you relate these two uh, games of truth, which we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, the third chapter, Truth is Force, inaugurates your analysis of paresia as a family of speech acts that bears a distinct set of defining conditions. Uh, that analysis extends into the fourth chapter, uh, the Dramatics of Truth. And then you finish in the final chapter, critique and possibilizing genealogy with an outline of the ways in which Foucault's project is not just a merely subversive or problematizing effort, but one that possibilizes. That is to say, it seeks to find the multiplicity of points of resistance or counterconduct that people can turn to in moments where governmental apparatuses and regimes of truth uh, expose their open spots or vulnerabilities. So what I'd like for us to do then is uh, to go about you know, chapter by chapter uh, while emphasizing three major movements, right? The first is how you set up uh, the field of intervention and how you lay out the problems that give rise to your inquiry. The second one uh, is, uh, the second movement is, has to do with your analysis of parezia as both a verbal and nonverbal speech act from the point of view of the perlocutionary. Uh, and, what you do is that you elaborate some conditions that you call that, that, that would make what you would call at one point in the book a happy speech act. Mm-hmm. Um, and in chapter five and the book's conclusion, uh, you, uh, you sort of extend beyond that and, and begin to think about sort of what critique and looks like in terms of uh, Foucault's notion of genealogy. So it's a lot of terrain to cut through. Um, So let's start with the first one, uh, this first movement or so. Um, In this, you lay out some of the problems involved with certain mischaracterizations of Foucault's thought, which then generate misrepresentations about Foucault on truth. So a three-part question, what are some of these misreadings or misrepresentations? Um, What aspects of Foucault's thought do they seem to leave unattended? And what does your research produce by attending to those aspects? Good. So a very
1: ambitious uh, question as well, or 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 three very ambitious questions. So I I, I would say that two of the main aspects um, that I think my book aims to criticize or to question in terms of the current readings of Foucault uh, consist in the idea that Foucault is um, a reductionist and a relativist about truth. So, as I was mentioning before, um, there are readings out there, I would say, you know, like uh, very prominent ones uh, that see Foucault as simply, as not being able within his own project to to significantly, meaningfully distinguish truth from power. And so the idea, the reading there, is uh, with the concept of power knowledge, Foucault is basically just getting at the claim that the truth and truth claims are merely strategic moves within uh, a framework, a network of power relations. Um, and in relation to this, um, uh, to this criticism or to, to this way of reading Foucault, um, The contribution that I see my book making is uh, making it clear that by distinguishing games and regimes of truth, and we will probably talk more about this in a minute, um, Foucault gives himself and has the resources to uh, distinguish truth from power and to acknowledge a certain autonomy of games of truth while at the same time Taking into account that no game of truth, no production of truth, claim uh, of truth claims uh, can be separated from the larger social political context where it happens. Um, the second main claim or main reading that I take my book to uh, be challenging is the idea that Foucault is a modernists who just like a relativist about truth, uh, who thinks that truth doesn't matter, you know, like or that uh, everything counts and uh, and this this is a reading that goes against, I think some some of uh, Foucault's own claims, but more importantly, uh, this is a reading that goes against, I think one of the main aims of Foucault's project, which is uh, precisely, uh, paying attention to the ways in which uh, the truth works within our life, our social life, our political life, our ethical life. So Foucault is very far from saying truth doesn't matter. I want to criticize truth. I want to get rid of truth. On the contrary, Foucault is is absolutely aware of the of the crucial role that truth and truth claims play in our life and wants to question that wants to explore that want to give us resources to um to be able to ask the question uh is it is it right like i'm am i doing the right thing by following by acting on the basis of this truth claim you know like how can i uh figure out ways to criticize a game of truth or a regime of truth that i find unacceptable etc cetera, etc cetera. so I, I see Foucault as opening up um, a very complex field where epistemic political and ethical questions uh, can be asked together um, at the same time, uh, which to me is extremely important for the reasons I was mentioning before, because I think that if we limit ourselves to the mere epistemic questions when it comes to truth, um, we lose sight of the ways in which truth and truth claims play a crucial role in our politics, in our ethics, uh, in the ways in which we are governed and we want to govern ourselves. Um, so these are two of the main claims or the main readings that I want to resist. Uh, and at the same time, two of the, you know, uh, two of the responses, I guess, or two of the things that I that I hope my book is able is able to do uh, in relation to that. Um, and the third part of your of your question was was there a third part of your
0: question? There was, or... and, and and maybe I think this is sort of more of a leading question going into the remainder of the the interview. Right, we're going to talk about how your research. Uh, what your research produces by, by, <clears throat> by attending to these different conceptions. So, uh, that, that was an unfair question on my part, perhaps, yeah. but uh, well, um, I can, I, I can give us, you know, I, I can give a spoiler or <laughs> it's, it's,
1: uh, it's, it's hard to say what my, what my research will produce, right. Because any, and it's part of, of, of my work on Foucault to actually pay, pay attention to, uh, the, um, unforeseeable nature of some of the effects of our claims once we put out our claims in the world, right? Um, But I guess that at least one of the aims that I want this book uh, to produce is uh, to resituate Foucault, uh, I guess to um, help people see how Foucault can be useful when it comes to talking about truth and truth-telling in political and moral philosophy today, without just like not considering Foucault as an interesting interlocutor because there's this prejudice that Foucault has nothing interesting to say about truth because he's just a relativist or a reductionist. So I think that I guess at the broader, at the broadest possible level, I hope that my book will uh, make people who perhaps didn't read Foucault or didn't read Foucault a lot uh, go back to Foucault go back to reading him and see if they can find some tools uh, in Foucault to think through some of the problems that we have
0: and the lecture and the lecture series goes a long way in, in, in that right because the the, the published works are, are very focused and, and very sort of directed interventions um, but uh, in in terms of uh, the, the text, and what your work of sort of reintroducing Foucault, as it were, um, it seems to me that in in the first chapter, um, you you uncover this this central aspect of what Foucault Foucault calls his uh, quote little history of the truth in general, um, and, and and that is that you frame that he that he frames truth in a slightly different way. Uh, that under the epistemic model, uh, which conceives of truth as demonstration, as proof, right? Uh, in Foucault, the stress on truth falls on the idea of it being an event, with each having different characteristics. C- can you expand a little bit on this idea of event and and and, and kind of contrast a little bit the the, the characteristics? Between those two versions of thinking about truth?
1: Sure, of course. Um, so I love this, these, these few pages that you find in uh Foucault's course on psychiatric power, uh, his course of the Collage de France, uh, where he says, Oh, you know, like I'm gonna give you a little history of truth in general in you know, 10 minutes. Uh so it's very um uh, it's very snappy and it's very interesting. Um, and w- what he does there is to contrast two, he calls that, positions of truth in our society. Uh, what he calls truth demonstration and the characteristic of this truth demonstration are that it is supposed to be uh, omnipresent. So it is supposed to be something that we can kind of find everywhere everywhere. Uh, and it's supposed to be uh, at least in principle universally accessible. If we do the right things, anyone can get at that truth. Uh, right. And and it's defined Foucault says in terms of a subject-object relation. It's defined in terms of you know as a as a knowing subject. Uh, I if I put myself in the position of knowing something, I should be able to. Uh, no matter what, right. Um, and this, uh, I would say, epistemological position of truth is, of course, uh, an abstraction up, up to a certain point. But I think Foucault uses it to tell us something about the ways in which we tend to think our relationship with the truth. We tend to, we tend to think that there's something absolutely pure. In our possibility to have access to the truth, and 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 that we're almost these disembodied subjects when we know the truth, you know, like we are these these uh, pure essences that are no longer um, uh, social beings, that are no longer natural beings, that are no longer uh, you know political and e- ethical beings. Um, and Foucault, and what Foucault is saying in in, in these pages is. Um, there's another position of truth in in our society, uh, what he calls the truth event, where uh, you know truth is not considered as this kind of uh, pure, pure thing that we can attain as pure subjects, but is considered as something that is dispersed, that is discontinuous, that cannot always be accessed uh, that only certain people can access at certain times. Um, and that is defined more in terms of of clashes and more in terms, uh, perhaps, of of, of a bellicose uh, relationship. And I think that what Foucault is getting at, at the end, is that uh, even this uh, kind of uh, contrast between these two positions is not really one, because in the end, Foucault's claim is, uh, truth demonstration is just in a a form of truth event but it's a form of truth event that masks itself and that and it presents itself as as pure as as not being as not stemming from uh this this other uh relationship or this other position to truth and there are interesting passages interesting passages for us that are in academia as well you know like where Foucault says well it's very clear that that when we when we talk about truth claims and the access to, to truth, et cetera, uh, the position of the subject is very important. Who can have access to certain truth? Who can speak certain truth in certain contexts uh, matters. Uh, the 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 voice of certain people depending on their social positions matters differently when it comes to um being recognized as uh, telling the truth or or not, right? Uh, and like going to the university, getting university degrees, et cetera, et cetera, going to school is considered in our society as things that one has to do in order to have access to certain truth, et cetera. So basically what Foucault is saying, this whole picture that we have of the truth as pure, omnipresent, universally accessible, et cetera, et cetera, is just is just an illusion. In reality, truth is much messier than that uh, and is never something pure. And therefore, in order to deal with the truth, in order to address the truth and truth-telling, we have to address the question of power and the question of the subject. Without reducing this question of truth, the power, and the subject one to the other, but Foucault here is building this kind of... Um, triptych of concepts where he's saying in order to understand how truth works and how truth telling works we have to ask the question of power and of the subject and this is true for the other two terms as well right so we have to uh, explore the relationship between these three terms uh, at the same time
0: that's wonderful because uh, in in that same chapter you, you analyze the kind of archaeological reading uh, that seems to produce an account of the terrain on which the truth event becomes visible, right? Uh, both in its subjective and the objective dimensions. And that subjective dimension you call the allothergic subject, or this the subject that uh, uh, that manifests or the truth, or or that manifests truth. And on the side of the object, we have games and regimes of truth. Um, and you know here, so we have the board, we have the rules, and we have the set pieces, right? Um, uh, can, can you talk a little bit more about this distinction you render between uh, games and regimes of truth, right? Because it does have that that uh, 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 mildly Wittgensteinian uh, echo, right, uh, with language games, but there, but there's something different going on here. So can you can you? Uh, Uh, help us parse through that a little bit
1: yes absolutely Um, so uh, I take Foucault to be drawing this distinction between games and regimes of truth um, in 1980 in his um, on the government of the living uh, lecture course at the Collage de France Um, and this is a distinction that that hasn't uh, attracted a lot of attention in the scholarship, but that I take absolutely, uh, I take to be as absolutely crucial, um, uh, precisely to respond to the question of reductionism or the criticism of reductionism. So, what I take Foucault to be saying there is, there are a series of games of truth. That we play as human beings in our society. And that is necessary, right? Uh, there are more stable and traditional games uh, of truth that we play. There are games of truth that, that are more, you know, that exist in shorter periods of times. Uh, certain games of truth might disappear at a certain points, they might, you know, emerge in other points, et cetera, et cetera. But the the crucial, so logic might be a game of truth you know like the uh scientific discourse or science in general is what Foucault calls a family of games of truth um you know uh just the more ordinary game of truth that has to do with with um uh with uh constative utterances and with facts etc cetera, etc cetera. well all of those things you know like it's just a myriad of games of truth that as you rightly pointed out sounds very similar to what Wittgenstein is saying in terms of language games, right? So we, we play, we are engaged in a series of games of truth or of language games. Um, and what Foucault says there in, in, in On the Government of the Living is really interesting because um, it's a clear response to all of the criticisms that, that present him as a reductionist, because he says, well, there's, a, there's an autonomy in each game of truth in the sense that each game of truth has a set of rules and norms, they might be explicit or implicit, doesn't matter, uh, according to which uh, who is playing that game uh, can recognize whether something is true or false. And Foucault is saying this is something that we can understand from within the the game of truth itself. So th- there's no power here. There's no there's nothing else that is uh, entailed in the functioning in the kind of internal functioning of the game of truth. So with this, Foucault is 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 basically like saying all of the reductionist readings of what I'm saying, uh, of course, gets things wrong because I I I I'm not saying that um, truth is just power. But what am I saying? Uh, is that um, every game of truth is also interestingly and importantly linked to a regime of truth, and Foucault defines a regime of truth as uh, uh, the 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 kind of the set of obligations that derive for the subject um, from certain truth claims or from. from certain claims that uh, are accepted within the game of truth. Um, And this is a very interesting move because basically Foucault here is trying to uh, show us that the relative autonomy of the rules according to which the truth is defined within every game of truth uh, is an autonomy that doesn't translate into a, what I call a Platonism about truth. The idea that the truth with the, you know, with the capital T exists, et cetera, et cetera. But but every game of truth has always to be considered, according to Foucault, um, within the broader social, political, ethical context where uh, people like me and you actually play it and play it from different positions and with different aims and, you know, like... um, and try to derive from the conclusions that they draw or from the truth that they produce within the game of truth uh, certain uh, prescriptions or certain ways in which one should act or certain uh, reasons to act in one way or another. And this is exactly, like, my claim is that this is Foucault's critical target. Foucault's critical target is not the production of truth claims, which is necessary for him and that he accepts and he doesn't want to criticize as a relativist would do. Um, His critical target is the connection between certain truth claims that are produced in our games of truth and the consequences in our conduct in the way in which we act, in the way in which we think and we relate with other people that derive from those truth claims. Um, And that's why I take this distinction between games and regime of truth to be absolutely crucial because it it really shows at the same time that, that Foucault was not a relativist or a reductionist and that his real target was how how do, how and why do certain truth claims acquire practical force in our life and in our ethical and political discourse?
0: It's it's interesting you mentioned that because as you were talking about uh, different you know, instantiations of, of games of truth, it makes me think about uh, Foucault's mastery of the interview and how and how he works in interview. If, if you. You know, there are, and and it's just a a great example because the the way in which he he has these very um, you you can tell that he's very aware of the different strictures and discursive possibilities within different forms of expression, right? Uh, The interview, I mean, his interviews are, are 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 object lessons in this. Um, but uh, that, that being said, insofar as Foucault's project portrays truth as an ethico-political relation of subjectivity and power, it, it opens up onto a history of truth with different kinds of manifestations. Right, uh, And you mentioned three of them, the confessional, which is, has, a, of course, a long history, uh, and the scientific, and the critical. Can you elaborate on these a little bit? And perhaps let us know how we might be able to detect the role that truth acts play in his in his thinking?
1: Yes, great. This is a great question. So um, uh, my argument in the book is that Foucault focuses among others, but like the, the three main regimes of truth that Foucault targets in his different works uh, are. Uh, the confessional, the scientific, and the critical. And this means to me that what Foucault is doing is... So Foucault thinks that some of the main ways in which we produce truth claims in our society, and we take those truth truth claims to um, be important in the ways in which we then decide to act or in which we are governed, are, broadly speaking um the scientific discourse both like exact sciences but also and i think that that was mainly the target of Foucault human sciences psychology uh, you know pedagogy etc cetera, etc cetera. um and so you have the 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 uh, sci- scientific regime of truth and the production of scientific claims uh, you have uh, the confessional regime of truth, which is another crucial target for Foucault because Foucault always, has always asked this question, why are we in our society required to tell the truth about ourselves? Why are we required to constantly um, produce acts of avowal or of confession about our identity, our sexuality, what what we think, who we really are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so for Foucault, this is crucial, uh, both from a religious perspective when he does the genealogy of of these acts, and also from a contemporary perspective, because he sees uh, psychoanalysis, for instance, being one of the contemporary manifestations of this uh, injunction to tell the truth about ourselves. Um, And then I think that Foucault also targets... Uh, or addresses the critical regime of truth and perhaps we can talk a bit more about this later but um, my idea is that when Foucault writes a genealogy um, every genealogy that Foucault writes the prison sexuality and so on always has aspects of a genealogy of critique as well always has aspects that focus on moments of critique and counterconduct against a certain regime of truth, against a certain mechanism of power. Um, and I think that those moments are both empowering and possibilizing moments. We can go back to this later, but are also moments where Foucault is showing that critique itself should not be considered as a suprahistorical historical, you know, activity, but it's a very much historical activity that needs to be questioned itself. And in a certain sense, in order to be critical, one always has to be self-critical as well. So I take Foucault, broadly speaking, to be targeting these three main regimes of truth in our society and to be writing genealogies of them. Uh, And through the genealogies that he writes of the confessional, the scientific and the critical uh, regimes of truth, I think that Foucault is trying to, at the same time, um, give us tools in order to um, uh, resist some of the uh, most undesirable effects of these regimes of truth, uh, while at the same time, especially with Polarizia, also presenting his own work as a genealogist as a form of truth-telling, of critical truth-telling, in a kind of imminent way, you know, like in a way that that, uh, always entails the necessity for self-criticism as I was saying before.
0: So I think a good place to go from there too is to sort of loop back to the aletherical subject right it, it that it, it seems that the 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 characters that populate uh these genealogies right uh in some way are related to aletherical subjects and i guess the the question is it would almost seem reasonable to to suspect that the that there are different ways to figure aletherical subjects within these different Regimes of truth. Um, uh, can you go into that just a little bit more, just to show sort of what what you know, what does the alethurgical subject of confession look like over against the alethurgical subject of, sci- of, of science? Look like.
1: Yeah, Matt. Great. So um, Foucault introduces or coins this term a leturgy, um and basically, like, it's term that for him means the manifestation of truth. Um, and so when I coined the term a lethargic subject, what I mean by that is that in Foucault, uh, the subject uh, that is the target of these genealogies is never, uh, you know, like a pure Cartesian subject. It's always a subject that is um, uh, asked to produce or to manifest different forms or different um, different truth or different truth claims. And so, of course, in, in the case of the confessional regime of truth, the other subject is uh, the subject that avows. And it might be, you know, uh, the monk in, I don't know, the fourth volume of the History of Sexuality, um, uh, where Foucault, or in On the Government of the Living, where Foucault and analyzes the different practices of, of avowal in uh, the in uh, the monastic communities of the first centuries of Christianity, um, where the point is to verbalize every single movement of one's thought, because one cannot be certain uh, of what is right or what is wrong if one doesn't verbalize everything because the act of verbalization itself uh gives us certain indications about um sinful thoughts right so if if we keep all of our thoughts in our minds and we never verbalize them we might um not be able to see that 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 there's one that is sinful. but if we try to verbalize them to another person, we will then have a certain resistance to verbalize a thought that was sinful, for instance, et cetera, et cetera. So Foucault goes into all of these um, analysis of the ways in which avowal is uh, conceived and practiced uh, in uh, monasticism, you know, like in Christian, Monasticism, in order precisely to show the ways in which uh, um, Western subjectivity up to a certain point has been constituted as you know the correlate of this injunction to to constantly ver- verbalizes um to co- to constantly verbalize one's own thoughts uh and to tell the truth about oneself um when it comes to the scientific regime of truth, uh, there, you know, like you have uh, the subject that is telling the truth in that kind of regime of truth is the subject that um, uh, ar- arrives at a certain conclusion after a demonstration, for instance, or after a certain experiment. Uh, and it's very interesting that Foucault, in his works on parasyia, talks about Galileo also. In- In a different way, because, of course, depending on the context, um, verbalizing or kind of manifesting a scientific truth can entail no risk at all or can be a political act. Right. Uh, So you have the example of uh, Galileo there where, uh, you know, um, uh, claiming certain scientific truth. When that entailed the risk of his life, um, you know, like of course, uh, was for Foucault an act that went beyond the scientific regime of truth and 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 uh, took on a certain horizontic character. Um, and then, of course, you have the critical uh, regime of truth. It's very hard to. Just have an archetype of the of the alethurgic subject when it comes to the critical regime of truth, Foucault talks about many different subjects of critique within his genealogies. So you have uh, you know, the uh, what he calls the revolt of the hysterics in psychiatric power. Ah, uh, you have the you have Herculine Barbin as the hermaphrodite. Uh, you have, uh, different forms of pastoral count, count, counter conduct asceticism mysticism etc cetera, etc cetera. you have in the fourth volume of this history of sexuality you have uh, virginity as uh, a way to uh, kind of subtract or kind of um, uh, take your body off of uh, the social um, the social world you know like and 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 uh, protecting it, at least up to a certain point. Um, you have his writings on suicide, for instance. You have more controversial ri- writings on, uh, you know, like death. Uh, you have his writings on um, the uh, the gay struggles uh, in the 80s and at the beginning of the 80s. So you, you have a, a, a set of uh, critical figures in Foucault that I think is important to... Um, um a knowledge because once again there is this uh, discourse that tends to present Foucault as the philosopher of power and as the philosopher of power is everywhere uh and i see foucault more as the philosopher of resistance and as the philosopher of resistance is everywhere and critique is everywhere and that's part of of what i do uh later in the book when it comes to poresia and the post Possibilizing aspect of Foucault's project.
0: And, and the, the, the way that I, I noticed, uh, at least, the way that one of the ways that you conclude this first movement, as it were, this little kind of pocket sized history of truth, as it um, uh, is that you kind of show us the way in which truth functions in Foucault's thought as a form of value or valuation with a particular mechanism. Um, uh, And that mechanism has to do with an affirmation of, or or an assent that something is true, uh, this assumption of a therefore, and then there's this aspect of submission. Um, And and this seems to be a structure that might cut across in some way, but, but, Can you tell us a little bit about that? That I mean, because it seems to me that that's a very kind of succinct uh, uh, laying out of sort of the the how. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess that the thing that
1: I the aspect that I really focus on there is is uh, as we were saying, you know, like this. uh, this formula that Foucault uses in *On the Government of the Living*, uh, it's true. Therefore, I submit. Right where where the therefore becomes the crucial element and the crucial target of Foucault's critique, um, and the link between the it's true that I interpret as the result of uh, certain procedures of truth manifestation within the game of truth, and the I submit which is what a certain regime of truth that we're playing uh, or that characterizes our society wants us to do, right? So I think that what Foucault is doing here by distinguishing games and regimes of truth um, is to show us that uh, most regimes of truth work by um, telling us that certain consequences at the level of our actions are necessary because of um, the truth claims that we accept uh, given a certain game of truth that we play. Um, And I think that what Foucault wants to do in his genealogical work is to uh, give mobility again, or kind of question again, this claim that um, a certain set of truth claims necessitates a given course of action, right? Foucault is trying to tell us, well, there are many ways in which we can play our games of truth and we can actually agree on certain truth, but that still, most of the time, doesn't tell us how we should act. And... That decision is still a political decision, an ethical decision that cannot be reduced to, uh, you know, the conclusion of a syllogism, the conclusion of, you know, like a mere demonstration, for instance. And so that's that's precisely in this it's true, therefore, I submit that I see Foucault also redefining his own project and saying, "My critical target is, the therefore is the ways in which we give certain truth claims the force uh, to conduct, to govern our, ourselves. And Foucault is not saying we have to reject all of the therefores. Foucault is saying, you know, like we have to make this therefore into a political and ethical problem and just ask the question, is it is it the way in which I want to be governed? Is it the way in which I want to act, really? uh because we know very well as i was saying before and this is also uh, great work that linda zerilli at chicago is doing um, just by like stating or recognizing facts uh we're still not we're still not able to enter into a political space in which everyone agrees people not only reject facts but sometimes just also accept certain facts and just say well it doesn't matter right uh so this politician lied you know three years ago well it doesn't matter so there's there's a sense in which this the the establishment of the set of truth and of facts um doesn't necessitate a certain course of action and the course of action that we take is the political problem that I think Foucault wants to attract our attention to, and and the link between the two is is uh, the target that Foucault gives himself in his genealogical work.
0: That that's that's wonderful, um, it, because what one of the implications of that too is that we that not only do is there are these selective functions right about um, that that implied in this in, in what one chooses to accept as true or what one takes up as a plausible therefore already sort of puts one into subjective relationship with mm-hmm. those others who make other subjects who, who advance truth claims. And so what happens is that you can even exclude the subject of that certain speech act that you don't agree with as being sort of irrelevant to the debate. Um, and I think that's something that that uh, in certain times of crisis we we notice that much more acutely um, in in terms of like uh, who is said to exist or who is said to have a position uh, in this debate as legitimate. Um, so I want to move on to the next section, major section, um, uh, in the interest of time, but. Uh, you know, we're, in this second major movement that I noticed in your text, um, you move away from these general systematic uh, uh, conditions and you you take a more sort of close-in analysis of the paresiastic elements uh, of Foucault's work. And to help you in this, you enlist uh, Austin's theory of the performative uh, and the, the notions of uh, illocutionary force that that that. That it entails, as well as Cavell's extension of Austin, that considers more carefully that is the the perlocutionary dimension of speech acts. Um, and, and in the book, you define it as um, what one does not in saying something, but by saying something. Can you? It seems to me that that the perlocutionary here, or, or getting a, a a grasp of the perlocutionary here, is. Uh, crucial to how you understand Parisia and the dynamics therein so can can you elucidate for our listeners this conception of the of the perlocutionary that you develop from from your reading of Cavell
1: Uh, yes of course Uh, so first off I just uh, wanted to clarify that uh, when Foucault talks about Parisia um, Parisia in ancient uh, Greek literally means uh telling everything um and Foucault interprets that in terms of telling the truth um and something that I'm interested in in these two chapters is not necessarily going into uh Foucault's historical analysis of the practice of paresia but um asking the question of why Foucault was interested in this specific form of truth-telling at a certain point. Um, And this stems from uh, something that I always found interesting and puzzling at the same time, which is the idea that truth-telling for Foucault, uh, most of the time, truth-telling as a vowel, as truth-telling about oneself, uh, was the target of Foucault's critique, because Foucault always construed it as a way of, as a way for power to get a hold uh, of, of us. Whereas in Parisia, it's clear it's clear that truth-telling becomes uh, almost a method of critique. And in order to understand philosophically what Foucault is doing with Parisia, and not historically, i.e. Mobilize JL Austin and Stanley Cavell's reading of Austin. Um, and my claim here is that we should understand paresia from the perspective of the perlocutionary. So what the perlocutionary is, is, so there's this idea that um, there are three main elements. Uh, this is one of Austin's main claims in how to do things with words, there are these three main elements uh, in um, in a speech act. There's the locutionary element, which is just simply the fact of saying something meaningful. Uh, there's the illocutionary element, um, which is, he says, what we uh, do by saying something, for instance, Uh, by saying uh, no, what we say sorry, in saying something, for instance uh, when I say um, it's dark outside I'm not only saying something meaningful, but I am also making an assertion right, so in saying it is dark outside, I'm making an assertion, in uh, telling Richard I uh, I Promise that I will come to your house next time that I am that that I'm in Austin. Um, I am making a promise. I am promising, right? Uh, and that's the illocutionary side. Um, and then Austin says, "Well, there's there's this third kind of act that we perform most of the times when we say something, and it's what we do by saying something. So, for instance." Um, I could,, um, when I tell Richard, uh, you know, next time that I'm in town, I will come to your house, um, I might have further aims. For instance, I might want to persuade Richard next time that I'm in town to invite me for dinner, right? Uh, so uh, this third element, the kind of, uh, the effects of our utterances that are not built into the speech act itself. So promising, warning, asserting are on the elocutionary side, whereas um, convincing, persuading, scaring... Um, Uh, you know, um, seducing, etc., etc., are on the perlocutionary side. So those are effects that might or might not be produced um, through our utterances. And I think that, you know, Cavell gives a very nice analysis of uh, what he calls um, uh, 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 passionate utterance uh in terms of the perlocutionary and what i do in the book is to give a similar analysis of parisia, uh, by focusing on the perlocutionary and on on the consequences of
0: the act that that is very helpful because um i, I think that that what chapters 3 and 4 of the book really write on is you know, your focus on the perlocutionary Um, And and what you do in those chapters is that you really pour through those lectures from the Collège de France and elsewhere, and and this robust definition or set of, you know, uh, conditions for the possibility of Parisia as a speech act emerges. Uh, And it's through this, partially through the reading, or mostly through the reading of of Foucault's sort of intensive investigations into Greco-Roman text. But I, I think what I want to do is abstract a little bit more, just so we can get at the center of the book and, and really sort of, I have about th- you know, three questions, but uh, they might be a little bit, they, they might all be able to be answered in the same way or in the same uh, uh, set of utterances. Like one, what are the con- the conditions of the parasiastic Speech Act, right? Um, two, what surprised you the most as you were going through these lectures? Um, and, and three, what does chapter 4 on nonverbal periesiastic acts disclose or teach us about the ethical dimensions of truth telling? I, I I know it's I'm, I'm I'm loading in a lot, but what I want to do is sort of lay out this the 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 broader aspects of I think of what the book is really getting at.
1: I'll do my best to respond while also being uh brief as brief as I can. So um the conditions of the Parisiastic acts which are to be taken as necessary but not sufficient and this list is not to be taken as like a you know it's it's to be taken as an open list um but what what i was interested in is to is uh, to to define um the contours, in a certain sense, of this very specific speech act that Foucault seems to be so fascinated about. And so I go into the definition of some of these conditions, uh, conditions such as the unpredictability of the effects of the utterance. So Foucault insists on the fact that um, Parisiya telling the truth to someone uh, is something that opens up a space where the effects of this act of truth telling are unpredictable at the beginning, right? They they kind of they are defined as we go, right? If I tell you the truth about yourself, or you know, like I tell you the truth, uh, by cri- criticizing you or telling you that I think that you did something wrong, um, the effects of the utterance are, according to Foucault, uh, non predictable. Um, The second condition is the idea that the speaker in uttering uh, a Parisiastic utterance uh, is free, and this is connected to the idea that um, a performative utterance in Austin's sense, not in Butler's sense, um, is one where the speaker has to play according to the rules of the game if he wants, if he or she wants to produce certain facts, For instance, if I want to actually promise something, I must say certain things. I must say I, I promise X, right? So I must know how to play according to the rules of the game. And from that perspective, Foucault says, I'm not entirely free. I just have to play according to the rules in order to produce a statement, you know, like in order to promise, in order to warn. Um, and according to Foucault, the Parisiast is someone that is free, which is to say that there are no uh, established social conditions for uh, the uttering of a Parisiastic um, uh, speech. Um, the third condition is the idea that parisia for Foucault is always critical, so it's always An utterance that uh, is made in front of someone that has a reason to feel criticized by it. The fourth and fifth conditions are linked to this because it it is always critical. Um, There's a risk that the speaker is taking, but this risk is, in a certain sense, indeterminate because the interlocutor can accept the criticism. And in that case, you know, like nothing happens or, you know, nothing happens to the speaker or the interlocutor can get very angry and like do something and and retaliate uh, right um so there's th- these two conditions are linked so risk on the one hand and courage on the other so the speaker the parasiastic uh, speaker is someone that shows courage by deciding to tell the truth the sixth condition is what i call transparency And it's interesting because here I go a little bit into the complex ways in which Foucault tries to distinguish Parisia from rhetoric, but basically here the idea is uh, a Parisiastic utterance is an utterance that uh, manifests the thoughts and opinions of the speaker in uh, the most transparent way possible uh, with the least possible rhetorical tricks or, uh, you know, uh, amount of oratory possible. um, And the seventh and last condition is what I call a lethargy, the manifestation or the eruption of the truth. And here I just build on what I established in the previous chapters, where... Uh, this manifestation or eruption of the truth is to be conceived as an ethical political force, as an event, and not as a demonstration, uh, right? Uh, so this, this is the way in which I, I characterize what Parisia is as a speech act. And to to get to your question of what surprised me the most as I was going through these lectures, I think that I first went through these lectures, I first listened to these lectures because they were still not published. So I was in the IMEC in Caen in 2007 and I was listening to Foucault giving these lectures. And one thing that really surprised me was the ways in which these very precise and accurate um, historical analysis that Foucault was making of these texts um always had, always sounded like um, they were very personal to him. So you have in these lectures, I think, the sense that Foucault is talking about poesia not only as an as a historical object, but as a mode of speech that interests him as a critical theorist. And that's part of what I try to show in the book, right? That Parisiya that can also be made or transformed into this mode of speech that the critical theorist can, can have. Um, and the last question about chapter four and nonverbal verbal Parisiastic acts, uh, it's, it's, it's just an element or a part uh, of, of, uh, of my analysis of Foucault's lecture courses. Uh, his last lecture course on the Cynics uh, insists on the idea that the manifestation of the truth doesn't necessarily have to go through speech; it can also go through through gestures, actions, um, and it's and it's a crucial part for me in the sense that what Cavell also saw in his analysis of the perlocutionary is that uh, you know, of course the perlocutionary or perlocutionary effects can be obtained and most of the time have to be obtained not only through speech, but also through extra linguistic elements. For instance, if I want to seduce someone or to convince someone, my tone of voice is going to be important my gesture or my actions are going to be important, not just what I say. Um, And I think that this is another element that is crucial both to Cavell's analysis of passionate utterance and to Foucault's analysis of paresia to show in the case of Foucault uh, that truth-telling or paresia is not just... Um, an utterance that sits that that sits or situates itself in a in the epistemic domain, but is thoroughly an ethical-political act. It's thoroughly something that the parasiast has to perform by putting their own life sometimes on the line, by risking something, by putting a friendship on the line, right? So it's, it's never enough to just consider it from the perspective of speech. It's necessary to consider it also from the perspective of the constitution of the subjectivity and of the life uh, of the person that is uttering those words.
0: That, that is, uh, I, I, and I like the way you put it in the text because um, between sort of the epistemic and what you call the, the dramatics of truth, um, there's that practic, the, the pragmatic aspect, but the 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 act seems to even extend beyond that that pra- that merely pragmatic. Or, you know, I, I understand there the, there's the the pragmatics in linguistics that try and sort of that in linguistics tries to, um, you know, Deleuze does this in, in in a thousand plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari where they try to focus on the 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 basic you know practical and also dramatic aspects of uh, of speech and how it's deployed within certain forms and and um and regimes uh but here th- this question of be- because I think it focuses on the the the, the subject uh brings home what is I think very important about Parisia is this, it's a embodied, right? It's played out, right? It, it's, um, there, and, and the, the interesting thing about Frank's speech is that it, it might not be scripted. There's the uncertainty aspect of it, um, but this it, 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 this is sort of the point at which, you know you can really see the materiality. In 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 Foucault's thinking about truth and truths truth telling, uh, uh, you know, sort of burst through um, because before right it's really you know, th- this, th- it's really easy sort of in comparison say to Austin right who who has these really lovely <laughs> examples and really humorous but in, in the end you know Foucault goes way beyond that and, and really sort of uh, and it's interesting that that you brought up this aspect of Foucault's you know, tone of voice, right? And that, that sort of to you disclosed this, uh, his own personal investment in in, in getting at this. Um, it, it, it in a way sort of bundles it up quite nicely, you know? Um, so what, what I wanna do now is um, sort of think about how we move on in chapter five and in, in the conclusion, um, because what, what happens here is that you know, now if we think about truth-telling in this very sort of situated, embodied, um, uncertain, free, yet frank and uh, a potentially dangerous way, um, it, 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 it seems to then place place us in a position to have to rethink a few things <laughs> uh, to say the least. And, and, and you do it in a couple places. Um, one, uh, in rethinking the functions of critique. Uh, and I think that's further down the line, but then at first you also think of, you, you, it forces us to have to rethink normativity and, and what the sources of, of norms really consistent so if you can go into those those, those two things, I think um, it, it will lead. I believe it it's sort of would help us. You, know, it, I think, in the end, get to the what I believe is the payoff. Uh, this sort of enunciate collective enunciation of the we, um, uh, of of the the singular plural. Um, but it, can, can you talk a little bit about these these sort of three movements that you take up in that last chapter?
1: Yes. Of- Yes, of course. So in in the last um, uh, chapter of the book, what I do is, in a sense, to present Foucault's genealogical and critical project in terms of a form of paresia, a form of truth-telling. Not because it tells the truth with the capital T, um, but because Foucault's genealogies in my reading uh, aim to produce certain effects of truth in the real, which means they are ethical political interventions that, when successful, will produce uh, almost in retrospect the conditions for the truth uh, of their own discourse. And I think that there's a meta claim that kind of traverses, goes through all of Foucault's genealogies, and it's the claim that things can be different, right? So uh, prisons are not the only way in which we can punish, or perhaps we don't even need, you know, like to punish in the way in which we think we need. Um, sexuality is not. Uh, the only way or the necessary way in which we can think of the relationship between pleasure, desire, and the body, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you have all of these meta-claims in every genealogy that Foucault um, writes that says things can be different, right? So this, this thing that we take as necessary is not. And I think that part of what Foucault is doing in writing these genealogies is to make them as... Uh, ethico-political critical interventions if successful, if they're taken up um, if they reinforce sometimes certain uh, political activist movements that already exist um, then these meta claims will become true because people will actually start thinking and acting differently will actually start you know Hopefully, according to Foucault, you know, like to punish in a different way, or perhaps punish less, or to punish in a, you know, or not to punish a, a at all, or or you know, like to question the prison and the prison system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. So, uh, in in this sense, I see Foucault as this very nice expression in in an interview from the late '70s, uh, where he says that. Uh, the truth of his books is in the future, and and I take Foucault to mean to mean this, right? So the truth of their of his books is not necessarily in the facts or the historical narratives that they you know um, offer, uh, but is in the effects that they can have on reality. And this is exactly what I uh, do the way in which I th- treat. Horizia and the perlocutionary in the previous chapters as well. So uh, that's the connection for for me between the two. Um, And this allows me to introduce this idea of the possibilizing genealogy and of the we-making. And the idea here is that uh, Foucault's genealogies not only problematize their targets, they do not only um, take a certain uh, phenomenon uh, and make it problematic for us, but they also at the same time provide us with certain tools or at least a framework um, uh, that allows us to see the possibility of no longer thinking, doing, acting in the way in which we do. And I think that they do so uh, by focusing on what I was mentioning before, which is different moments of resistance and counterconduct that existed in the past and that uh, still exist in the present against their target, against a given regime of truth, a given uh, apparatus of power, knowledge, Etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is where the question of norm- normativity that you mentioned before comes in for me, because it also means that uh, Foucault's critical project uh, is not one that is that relies on normative grounds, on stable normative grounds, but is one that, um, in a certain sense, works with the norms and the forms of normativity that are already there and that the social actors are already engaged with. And of course, this means um, choosing a path that is very different from traditional critical theory, for instance. Uh, But I think that this path of um, uh, conceiving of normativity in an immanent way of thinking of um, social actors as those who are already enmeshed in norms and who are going to rework those norms, and of the intellectual or the critical theorists not as the one who's going to be to establish new norms, but one who's just gonna hopefully provide some tools to the social actors for the work of redefinition of norms. is... I think what I take Foucault to be doing and what I take is genealogical work uh, to be doing. So, uh, you know, uh, a a work that I take to be in the service of the creation of communities of resistance um, Mm -hmm. or the strengthening of communities of resistance that already exist uh, by providing these communities uh, with new tools, new ways of interpreting uh the word and reality, and also with the idea of these struggles have a past, have a history. Other people in the past have been struggling and fighting against the same power mechanisms. And so there's a kind of continuity, almost transhistorical continuity of struggles that I think uh, is Empowering and from which I think a certain form of normativity stems.
0: Well, it's interesting because um, the the way that you wind up you know, setting this out makes me think a made me think a couple of things. One that uh, to some extent um, communities in some way are formed along the lines of resistance that it's not just that there are that there are communities and communities of resistance that resistance helps constitute a community uh, of sorts right um, and and secondly is that there is this project you know this through line in Foucault right where you know you know early on in his or sort of the midpoint of his project he talks about um, you know, he, he writes to become something else, somebody else or something other, right, um, and, and that aligns very much with sort of this effect that's, that that the, that this form of genealogy seems to be producing, and also in line with a certain form of spirituality, right, where, where, where spirituality becomes, in Foucault's version, a form, the, 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 the means by which one uh, lives out this will to become something else or to become somebody else or, or to will to be transformed um, and, and you know I know Rabinow was had had written an article you know several years ago about um you know Foucault's untimely search for for spiritu- for spirituality right um and, and I I think that this very much you know ties it up somewhat neatly I hope um, but uh I, you know, I, I think that this that your your book really is pathbreaking in that it opens up the, these broader vistas about what Foucault's notion of Parisia actually ha- can help us produce. It, it is a very powerful through line. Um, so with that, I wanna thank you so much for spending time with us to discuss the force of truth. Um, I hear that at present you're in Berlin and working on a Humboldt Research Fellowship uh, if you don't mind me asking, what are you working on?
1: Um, well, first of all, thanks so much for your questions and your engagements with the book. Um, yes, I am in Berlin, um, and thanks to to the Humboldt Foundation, I have some uh, some time free from teaching, uh, and I'm writing a book on Franz Fanon right now. So, uh, you know, part of the point here for me is to try to figure out a way to present Fanon's social philosophy and critical theory in a way that is coherent and conversant with uh, contemporary work uh, in social philosophy and critical theory. Um, and I, 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 I've been teaching Fanon for the past three years, and that has helped me a lot, kind of clarifying what I want to, uh, to take uh, from, from him um and i guess that one of the one of the main aims of my book is that you know is to present fanon's work in the same way in which in this book i present foucault's work on truth right uh, as as one that merits consideration as a coherent project in critical social philosophy and not only in phenomenology which is the way in which fanon is mostly treated with, within philosophy or or uh not only, you know, like as a project in other uh, fields uh, that um, where Fanon and Fanon's work have been discussed uh, so far. Uh, So I'm I'm writing this book and I'm editing uh, a book, a volume for the 100th anniversary of Foucault's birth. So it's gonna come out in 2026. Um, and it's going to be a new companion to Foucault. Uh, it's kind of huge, 50 chapters, et cetera. I'm very excited. Uh, a lot of wonderful contributors for the book. So uh, stay tuned, not only for Fanon, but also uh, for more uh, Foucault.
0: Oh, that sounds fascinating. And um, I mean, you're, you're, you've already had a prolific body of work, and this is only adding to it. So... Um, and you've already done so much to open uh, new areas of inquiry through this meticulous and much needed reassessment of Foucault's thought. Um, so I, I can't wait to learn more about uh, about what's coming in the future. Uh, on behalf of the Philosophy Channel on the New Books Network, I want to thank you, Daniele, for being on the show today. And I uh, enjoyed our conversation immensely.
1: Thanks, Richard. It was great to be here. Thank you. <laughs>
0: You're welcome. Take care now.